Happy for the occasion that brings me here this morning. You may know I'm, uh, I'm a substitute preacher this morning because of the Deprimus son being born and him needing relief, and I'm happy to come on such an occasion, and I'll be glad to come every, every time there's such a need, Alex. <clears throat> the text this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Nathan prayed that the Lord would be lifted up, that we would grow in our appreciation for him and our gratitude to him and our love for him and our communion with him. And this is a passage that is well suited to those concerns. And may it please the Lord to answer that prayer as we look at this passage together. The passage is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 and 16, but primarily verse 15. But first, let me ask a question to the children. Do you think of Jesus as a little boy? He was a little boy. We know most of what we know about him as an adult man. But he once was like Dominic de Prima. He once was a little baby boy who needed to be fed and needed to be changed, and he was just a little baby boy. And the Bible said that he had to grow in wisdom and stature. He didn't come from the womb wise. He didn't come from the womb mature. He came from the womb an infant, and he had to change, and he had to, he had to grow. He had to grow. He had to become wise. He had to experience all kinds of problems, and he, he had to grow in wisdom in the context of the life of an ordinary child. He had four brothers and some sisters, so he may have had struggles in his family. His parents were not perfect, and he was wiser than they were, So he may have had to obey things that he didn't think were the right choices, but nonetheless, he had to learn obedience to his parents. He may have had rabbis who preached long sermons, and he had to sit in in, uh, unpleasant circumstances, long periods of time, maybe trivial troubles for a child. But he went through all the troubles of being a child. And even though we don't know very much about his troubles as a child, the Bible does say that in the context of his life, he experienced all the sufferings that are common to human beings, and that God the Father intended for him to suffer all the sufferings that are common to human beings, whether as a child or as an adult. It was God's intention that he suffer everything, at least in principle, that all human beings suffer so that he would learn, so that he would experimentally appreciate our sorrows. And whether it's the sorrows of a child that might be relatively small, or whether it's the anguish of parents who have just heard of the death of their child, the Lord has experienced what's common to human sorrows, that he would be sympathetic with us. That's the point of this text. Let me just read it, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. The old translations, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched. Even though he has ascended into heaven, he is not out of reach. He is not in a situation where he cannot be touched. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'd like us just to take a moment to consider the larger setting of these verses, and then I'd like us to look specifically at verse 15. But the larger setting. The man who wrote the book of Hebrews was concerned that some people in his audience, that some people were in danger of falling away from Christ, perhaps falling away from Christianity altogether. In chapter 10, he refers to the intense physical suffering that some of them had experienced. Some had been thrown into jail. Some had had their goods plundered, their houses plundered. Some hadn't, it hadn't happened to them, but they were sympathetic with people to whom it had happened. In chapter 6, he writes that some of them who had been Christians long periods of time were not growing in grace. He says, you are at a place where you should be teaching other people, but instead you have to go back and learn the first rudiments of the Christian faith. And so the problem is, he said, you haven't learned to exercise your sense to judge what's good and what's evil. You, you, you haven't grown in grace. So they're in danger of falling away. In chapter 2, he says some of them are in danger of letting Christ or Christianity slip away from them. And in chapter 3, he writes about the historic apostasy of Israel, that God gave them every privilege, brought them out of Egypt, blessed them, blessed them, blessed them. They still wouldn't be obedient to him. They still wouldn't be faithful. He says they fell away in the wilderness. He says, don't let that happen to you. And in addition to all of that, what leads right up to our passage is he uses threatening language to them. Look at the language of chapter 4, verse 11. After warning them about this actual apostasy of Israel in the wilderness, he tells them, verse 10, for, I'm sorry, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter rest, lest anyone fall according to the example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. That's striking language. Be careful about apostasy. Be careful that you not let things slip away. The fact is, some people did fall away in the wilderness. Everything is open to this God with whom we have to do. It's like we're naked and exposed before him. Everything's open to him. Now, if you were laying all of that out to some of God's struggling people, what would you want to say that would give them encouragement? Well, what he does say, in the light of all this sobriety, what he does say is that Jesus is emotionally connected to you, that Jesus is sympathetic with you. And if you appreciate their moment, you know, their, their history, they were struggling. There were reasons that the writer is anxious that some might fall away. They were being persecuted. They, they hadn't, all these things, what he brings to them is Jesus is sympathetic with you. He, he, there are so many good things that he could have written that would have been consoling. He could have written to them about the forgiveness of sins. He could have written to them about justification through faith and being saved, not on the basis of our conduct. But he writes to them about Jesus' sympathy. And that's what I'd like us to consider this morning. So there are four things I'd like us to consider from this passage. Number one is the certainty of Jesus' present sympathy. And the, the focus, of course, is on his present sympathy. It's not the sympathy that he had when he was upon the earth. But, so the first is the certainty of Jesus' present sympathy. 
The second will be the cause of his present sympathy. The third would be illustrations of that sympathy. And finally, I'd like us to look at an implication from Jesus' sympathy. So the first then is the certainty of Jesus' sympathy. We have a double negative here. Everybody know what a double negative is? If you say not twice or no twice or never twice. We do not have a high priest that cannot, that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now in English grammar, that's frowned upon to use a double negative. I'm not sure when in grammar school we, you would get this lecture from your, from your English grammar teacher or your, or your mother if you're in a homeschooling situation. And somewhere along the way, you're taught that it's not good English. It's frowned upon to use a double negative. Well, in the Greek language, it's not like that. In the Greek language, using a double negative is very appropriate. It's a very appropriate way of making a strong statement. And that's what we have here. And it's good that the English translators have not tried to dull this down. So even though it's awkward English, you have, you have the double negative. We do not have a priest that cannot be sympathetic with us. Let me read to you. You can bear with a little dryness. I'd like to read to you um, a couple of sentences from a Greek grammarian to make this point. He says, this is the strongest way to negate something in Greek. The meaning is something like this. Never. Positively not. It will never happen. It's unthinkable. There is not even the slightest possibility that it will ever happen. This double negative in the Greek is meant to be a very strong statement. The point is, it's not possible that our high priest fails to sympathize with us. It's not conceivable that he would fail to be sympathetic to our weaknesses. There's not even the slightest possibility that this could happen. And there's a, an excellent a commentary on this by John Brown, and he makes this statement. The truth is, the truth is, he is not, he is not only, I'm sorry, the truth is, he not only can be touched, but cannot but be touched. The assertion is not that it's possible that he may sympathize, but it is impossible that he would not sympathize. It's impossible for him not to sympathize. What a statement. There's a certainty here in this double negative. We must not fail to appreciate the degree of certainty that the writer expresses in this passage. Why do you think it would be important for the writer to stress this certainty in such a way? Well, it's because there are a lot of reasons, at least apparent reasons, there are a lot of apparent reasons to think Jesus would not be sympathetic. Remember John's, the Apostle John's picture of the resurrected Christ in the book of Revelation chapter 1? He's, the resurrected Christ is viewed as somebody who has burning eyes, who's able to see into every person's soul, who's able to know everything there is to know about that person. Similar to the language in the, in the previous verses, where this God with whom we have to do everything is naked and open before him. That's intimidating. That's real, and that's intimidating. And it would be easy for people to think that with the Lord having that kind of knowledge, these burning eyes that can see into the depths of my soul, it'd be easy to think that such a God would not be sympathetic with us, especially when our own consciences, when our own consciences make us feel ashamed of our weaknesses, make us feel ashamed of our faults, make us want to withdraw from actually coming to this God before whom every... There's, there, there are reasons why many of God's people need to be reminded it is certain. It's not possible. It is certain 
that we go to the Lord, he is affected, he is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. The second, that's the certainty, the certainty of Jesus' present sympathy. The second is the cause of his present sympathy. It says he was tempted in all points as we are, without sin. Now, you mustn't read the without sin as if it cancels everything out. You mustn't think the idea is not because he was so perfect, he went through all this stuff and it didn't affect him. That's not at all the point. He went through all the sufferings. He felt all of the power of those sufferings. But he did not give in to those sufferings. He did not give in to any sinful temptations. It's similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. There are trials, there are temptations that ordinary people go through. And this text says that he was tempted or tried in all these ways, but he didn't sin. He experienced our common weaknesses. And the writer's point is that he, ex- he experienced our common weaknesses and thus is necessarily, necessarily sympathetic with them. Jesus was so affected by his various trials. He was so affected by his various trials in the days of his flesh that he is presently conditioned by them. Now, that's at the heart of the point of this passage. He was so affected by what he experienced that he is presently conditioned by that. Now, he's not continually tempted. He's not being continually tried. Of course not. He is exalted in heaven. But the point of the passage is he he was so affected by those human experiences that he is presently conditioned by them. He is presently conditioned by what he experienced in the days of of his humiliation when he walked upon the earth. He is not walking upon the earth. He is not in a state of humiliation. He is our high priest who has passed through the heavens. He is in the state of the highest exaltation and glorification. And he's still incarnate. And he's still conditioned by what he experienced when he walked upon the earth. Now, there is a stress in the book of Hebrews that the Son of God needed to experience human suffering. He needed to, which is a very interesting thing to contemplate. You might think that God just knows everything. But the scripture says that he needed to suffer because there was something that he needed in terms of perfection. Look at the, some of the language. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 10. The, the first part of the verse is in reference to God the Father. For it was fitting for him, for God the Father. It was fitting for God, from whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was a perfect son. He was perfect God. But to be a perfect savior, to be a qualified savior, he had to attain that qualification through suffering. He needed this. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. It was necessary. He would not have been able 
to properly minister. He would not have been proper, he would not have been able to do the things that the Savior is to do unless he had experienced trial and suffering. And that's the point of our text here. It is not simply that it happened, it was it needed to happen. He didn't come out of Mary's womb perfect as Savior. He needed to develop perfection as Savior by the things that he suffered, going through them appropriately, and having the imprint upon his mind, having the imprint upon his emotional being, his mental being. This is what it's like to be human. This is what it's like to suffer. This is what it's like to go through these various trials. God the Father determined this was necessary for God the Son to be a qualified and adequate Savior. I'm trying to stress that there was something that Jesus needed to experience as opposed to observe. We can learn a lot of things through books, right? We can read about things and gain an accurate knowledge of things by reading. We can gain an accurate knowledge of things by observing. We can gain an accurate knowledge of, of things by, by reading or by observing or by listening to other people's experiences. But the point of these passages is that was not a sufficient education for the Son of God if he was to be a qualified Savior. There are some things that needed to be learned by experience. He needed to feel what we have felt and experience what we have experienced. This passage is drawing our attention to something other than love. This is not about God loving us or Jesus loving us. This is about Jesus sympathizing with us. You can, you can love someone that you're not deeply sympathetic with. A rich man can love a poor man. A rich man can love a poor man. But a rich man can't sympathize with a poor man unless he once was poor. If he lived on the streets and he went to the shelters and he was going from one friend's couch to another and if he was dependent upon the charity of others and then he became rich, well, he could love the poor man and sympathize with the poor man. But if he didn't have the experience, he could love him but not understand him. There are only a few people, there are a lot of people that are going to love this grieving family in our home church. There are lots of people that are going to love them. There are only a few that are really able to enter into what they feel. There are only a few parents who have lost their child like this. There are only a few siblings who have experienced the loss of their brother or their sister. A lot of people are going to love them, but they're just a handful. And it's just those who have had the experience that are going to really sympathize with that grieving family. Well, that's what this is about. This is not a statement about God's love for us. That's a given. This is a statement about God the Father putting his son through different experiences so that he would understand us from the standpoint of experience from the standpoint of being a fellow sufferer. So we've looked at the certainty and we've looked at the cause, that is, that he had to suffer what we suffer. And now an obvious question, what did he actually suffer? What did he actually experience? So that's the third heading, illustrations of what he experienced. There is a, the, the general sense, the general statement is that he experienced everything that's common to human beings. A, don't misunderstand that. It's not that he did everything that human beings do. He was never married. So the particular uh, difficulties of being married, as well as the joys of being married, he didn't experience those. He was never a father, so he didn't experience whatever... He was never an old person. But as a human being, 
he is said, according to these texts, to have been tempted in all the ways that human beings are. He wasn't a woman. He wasn't an aged person. He wasn't some things that are part of... But he did experience what is common to all human beings. So some of the things that you have in the Gospels, it's a, um, it's a helpful exercise to read the Gospels with just this one question in mind. What do I learn about Jesus' trials? What do I learn about him that would indicate an aspect of his sympathy with the human condition? And of course, more to the point, what would I learn from this passage that would indicate a sympathy with me, with, with my condition? Well, some of the general things. I'm just going to list some general things. <clears throat> Number one, he experienced physical suffering. He experienced physical suffering, and thus he developed a sympathy for those who suffer. Poverty, dependent upon the charity of others, tired, being hungry, being drawn out in mental labor and spiritual labor. He suffered the, those effects. Number two, Jesus experienced disappointment at the hands of his friends. His parents... His, his brothers and sisters didn't believe in him until after he was raised from the dead. His disciples regularly disappointed him. Disappointment, disappointment from his friends. But he suffered real rejection and antagonism and hatred from people as well. He, he, he suffered all of that. He, he, he had, had every negative re- aspect of human relationships, from just being disappointed to being hated and killed. Well, whatever kinds of of disappointing relationships that you've experienced, he suffered that as well. Number three, he experienced hatred from religious bigots. And he, de- he develops a sympathy for those who suffer malice, for those who suffer hatred from other individuals, which many of God's people actually experience malice and the hatred of people that don't love them. In the fourth place, he experienced both subtle and bold attacks of Satan. You read this at various points in the Gospels where the effect of Satan's uh, efforts are made large and other points where it's in the background. It does happen to God's people. God's people do have experience with demonic powers. Jesus understands those. He experienced sorrow and compassion for hurting people and thus developed sympathy for them. He experienced experienced sympathy for people that are suffering. He also experienced sympathy for people who watch them suffer, like parents who watch their children suffer. He developed sympathy with with the suffering child. He developed sympathy with the suffering parent. What do you think was going on in Jesus' mind and heart when his providence, his choice caused Lazarus to die. He could have gone and healed Lazarus. He was begged to come and heal. He could have done that, but he didn't. He chose to let him die. And then he went there and cried. What do you think, what do you think is going on in the Lord's soul there? It grieved him. Letting that man die grieved him. Watching all those other people weeping, it grieved him. He became sympathetic with people who suffer and people who are suffering the grief of other people's suffering. In the next place, Jesus experienced anguish over lost people and developed sympathy with you who suffer anguish over lost people. He wept over lost people. When he contemplated the fate of Jerusalem, 
them rejecting, 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 he offering himself and them rejecting and now he's going to withdraw the offer and God's going to bring awful judgment. He, he cries, he wails over Jerusalem. He was deeply tender, he was deeply sympathetic with the prospect of people being lost. He experienced a great deal of agony embracing the Father's will for him. Everybody who knows the Christian gospel knows about the assignment that God the Father gave God the Son. The assignment was, you, my son, are to bear the sins of your people. You're to take their sins upon yourself, and you're to submit yourself to death on the cross. He knew that. He accepted that. The last half of his public ministry, he's emphasizing, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. I'm the night before he was arrested, though, he's contemplating this. And what, what's he doing? He's, he's sweating great drops of blood. He's praying. And agony is overtaking him as he contemplates what the Father wants him to do. And he works through that, and he says, thy will be done. Well, that's a dramatic story, and it has a special relevance to the history of redemption. But let's step back from that for a moment and just see what it says about our text. He, ex- he experienced a huge degree of agony embracing the will of God for him. It was difficult for him. Some of you may be in situations where you're being required to accept something in God's providence or in God's will that's very hurtful, and you really... The Lord sympathizes with that. The Lord sympathizes with that. There's there's hosts of things of a general nature that we could draw attention to. The last thing, though, is something that I trust is not new to any of you, but it's something that has special relevance to this passage and probably special relevance to, to, to the, uh, certainly to those of you who are Christians. And it's this, that Jesus experienced the worst effects of sin. He experienced the worst effects of sin and thus developed a sympathy for us when we suffer the effects of sin. Jesus experienced the worst effects of sin. Now, he didn't sin ever, but he experienced the worst effects of sin and thus developed a sympathy for us when we suffer the effects of sin. He did not sin, but he suffered the worst effects of sin. He suffered shame. He suffered the withdrawal of God's presence. He suffered wrath. He was made to be sin for us. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. His soul was made an offering for sin. His soul was brought into travail and agony. And he felt this and he sensed this ordeal in the garden and he experienced it upon the cross. Now, I'd like to expand on those three ideas for a moment. Again, because I think they have special relevance to us and they're especially, these elements, I think, are especially relevant to the understanding of this text in Hebrews chapter 4. He experienced shame. One of the worst effects of sin is shame. He experienced shame. He experienced shame before human beings. And he certainly experienced shame before God. I'm going to read to you some texts. I'd, I'd like you not to try to turn to them. I'd just like to read to you some texts. These are messianic texts in the Old Testament. These are Old Testament texts that are about the coming Messiah, messianic texts. So here is one from Psalm 22 and verse 6 where this is the language for the Messiah. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. This is in reference to him being upon the cross. All those who see me ridicule me. 
They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, aha, aha. Psalm 69, 19. You know my reproach, the Messiah says. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And perhaps that's a foreshadowing of the, all the disciples forsook Jesus. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected of men. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. All of that, those type of messianic passages, are subsumed in this statement in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. He endured the cross. What's the next words? He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was an awful ordeal for the Lord Jesus to bear our sins. It was shameful to him. We have sinned so much that we've developed kind of a barrier to our spiritual sensitivity. Jesus never sinned. And yet here at the end, he is bearing the iniquity of us all. And for a conscience that had never known anything of the pains of guilt, never hardened in any way, for this one to bear the sins of his people, the sins of the world in that sense, he's ashamed of that and he despised it. But he experienced it because he had set his face like a flint to bear our sins and the shame and the disgust and the ridicule, the shame before God, the shame before the human. He was not willing to, he wasn't willing to defend himself. He wasn't willing to shuck that. He's going to accept that shame. Well, you experience shame when you sin. And it is often the kind of shame that makes people not want to go to God because they're so ashamed. Well, the point of this passage is hold fast your profession. We have this high priest who cannot but be affected by our weaknesses. Go. Go to the throne of grace because he will be sympathetic with your shame. He experienced in the second place, he experienced desertion by his father. He experienced the most profound kind of distance and even silence. And according to the gospel accounts, this, this separation that Jesus experienced on the cross apparently was something of a surprise to him. And for me to say it was a surprise to him, of course, that takes you into the realm of mystery. How could the Son of God who knew everything be surprised by anything? But that is the language that the scriptures use. And so we kind of have to back away from our logic and appreciate the scripture says that it was, it was, it was bewildering to him. In John chapter 16 and verse 31 and following, Jesus predicted his death. In John 16, 31, he predicted his death and he predicted that the disciples would desert him, but he was confident that he would be sustained. He was confident that though everyone would forsake him, this is a quote now, I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
He knew he was going to die. He knew his disciples were going to forsake him. But he says that it's, a, it's all right. I am not alone. The Father is with me. Well, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Father was with him. He heard his son's cries. He sent an angel to minister to him. The father was with him. He went to the trial and his father was with him. He went through the scourging and his father was with him. He endured the first hours of shame and agony upon the cross. His father was with him. He prayed for them to his, to his father to forgive them and have mercy. His father was with him. He was with him, with him, with him. But there came a point when Jesus realized that he was alone. He seemed amazed. He seemed bewildered. He did not seem to comprehend the reason. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the point is he experienced distance of an almost absolute kind, not a permanent kind. But he experienced distance, separation, bewilderment at that distance and separation. He experienced the wrath of God. He experienced shame. He experienced distance. He experienced wrath. Our sins provoked God's wrath. And when our sins were laid upon his son, then his son had a target for the wrath of God, which should be directed to our sins. And God did not spare him. With our sins being upon him, God did not, he crushed him. And Christ, the son of God, felt the crushing weight, the full weight of God's undiluted wrath. Some of the texts use very striking language. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded. He was bruised. Isaiah 53, 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. 53.12, he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. I wouldn't know what words to use. I, I suppose no one really knows what words to use to describe what it was for the Son of God to experience wrath, because that is beyond our experience. We have some experience of shame, so we read about Jesus experiencing shame. We have something to connect with. We know shame. We read about him being deserted by the Father. We know something about praying and not having any sense of communion. We don't know anything about, being, about bearing the just punishment for our sins. Jesus went way beyond our experience when he experienced the crushing wrath of God. I was trying to make the point that he experienced the worst aspect of sin and he actually experienced more than we will ever experience of sin because in Christ we will never bear the weight of our sins. We will never be punished as the Son of God was punished because he has done the great thing. He has, he has taken our sins. He has taken the punishment. But the point of this passage is that he's experienced the whole course of human sorrows. And the greatest part of human sorrow is the effect of our sins. And though he never did sin, he experienced the worst parts. Shame, distance, alienation. 
and actually wrath. It is sobering, it is wonderful, it is sobering to realize that Jesus, in that last regard, did experience something we will never have an analog with. We will never understand what it was like for him to be completely crushed under the wrath of God. Surely you who are Christians have experienced shame over your sin, shame before God. Perhaps some of your sins have been public and you've experienced shame in reference to one another. Jesus is very sympathetic with that sense of shame. Surely if you are a believer and you've gone through the normal vicissitudes of the spiritual life, surely you've experienced times of distance from God where you have whatever, something's out of sort. You just stop praying or you're ashamed of something and that keeps you from praying or, or God seems to withdraw like he... Well, you, Jesus is very sympathetic with that. Jesus experienced these feelings and he's marked by them now. It is impossible for him to not be sympathetic with our weakness. The point of all this is that Christ learned of our condition by his experiences and his sufferings while he lived upon the earth, the feelings which were impressed upon him. The feelings that were impressed upon his emotional makeup in the days of his humiliation continue to condition his response to us in his present ministry. The feelings that he felt as a result of, fill in the blank, all the things that he experienced. The feelings that he felt as a result of poverty or weariness or misunderstanding or abuse by friends or his experiences with Satan or his grief over lost people or his anguish over God's will or his sense of sin, all those things he feels still. And thus he continues to sympathize with our dilemma. I want you to appreciate the, the uh, emotional level that this text addresses. All the truths of God should affect us in some emotional way. The idea of being loved, the idea of being forgiven, I mean, those, those should affect us in very emotional... This is directly addressed. This is not a statement about abstract forgiveness. This is not a statement about abstract love. This is about feelings that the Son of God experienced and sympathized. The, the Greek word for sympathy is like fellow suffer, to suffer with. Well, that's, that's a profound connection between the Son of God and us. And we lose something of the heart of Christianity if we're not, connect, if we're not focused upon that, that emotive connection that God the Father wanted God the Son to have between his Son and us. Now, the implications of this, of course, are many, which is the fourth point on the outline. The primary implication is obvious in the passage, Right? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's, that's the immediate application. Let us persevere. Let us hold fast our confession. He's in heaven. He's not on the earth. He's not with us. But he's so sympathetic with us. He's so touched by what we experience. Hold fast. Now, none of us, thankfully, 
are in the situation they're in. None of us have had, uh, I think, that none of us have had our homes plundered. None of us have visited our fellow believers in prison. Well, they, all that stuff was theirs. Hopefully you're not like some of them who had stopped growing in grace years ago when they should have been growing in grace. Hopefully you're not in a situation where you're letting things slip out of your hands like some of them were. But if you are, hold on, because your Savior sympathizes with your struggles. Your Savior sympathizes. He's there for you. Now, the other part is, that the next, is, in, is in the next verse, verse 16. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore... Because Jesus is presently conditioned by what he experienced in the days of his humiliation, because he is sympathetic and cannot but be sympathetic, he will be sympathetic when you come to him. Therefore, therefore, let us go with confidence. The boldness here is not brassy. It's not triumphant. It's not anything like that. It's assurance. Come with the assurance that a child would have who's very much loved by his father. Come with boldness. Come openly. Not to the throne of justice. Come to the throne of grace so that you may obtain, that you may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. The point is a simple point. is that we're supposed to be assured of a sympathetic audience when we pray. We're to be assured of somebody who is in heaven with his heavenly father who knows our struggles sympathetically, sympathetically, sympathetically profoundly more tender than any of us ever are with, with our sympathies for one another. So that's the primary application of this. The people of God and their struggles should be encouraged. The Savior understands us. The Savior is not excusing us. It's not the idea that he's just tolerant and really doesn't matter. It does matter. Our obedience, our, of course it matters. But whether we're on the top of the scale or the low end of the scale... His sympathies with us are steady. And he will never be unsympathetic to us. And therefore we should go. And if somebody's dealing with besetting sins and they've gone again and again and again, well, you don't begin to know yet the shame that Jesus experienced. And you have not yet dealt with sin like he dealt when he was crushed by his sympathetic, not tolerant, but sympathetic and so you go not, not to gain toleration. You go to gain grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. There, of course, are a lot of implications to this passage. One of the implications would be how we ought to treat each other. If we can really grasp this idea that Christ has such a sympathy for each one of us and that no matter no matter how inconsistent we are, if we had this awareness that Christ is sympathetic toward that guy over there that you don't even like to speak to, we're talking about the, within the circle of God's people, that Christ has such a tender, sympathetic regard for his struggles, what does it say about the kind of sympathetic regard that we should have for the Lord's people who struggle? The absence of humility is very ugly among God's people. It's very ugly. Is very unlike the Lord, who was not every he was not the critic of his people. Now think about this. The Lord had very strong words of direction and criticism toward his disciples. And he still does toward us. But it's a directive and a 
that is, in the context of the deepest kind of fellow suffering, of fellow sympathy, well, we should have that toward one another. If you add to this text, chapter 7, verse 25, where it says that the Lord is ever living to intercede for us, and you have that awareness that not only is he tender, but he's constantly praying for that brother that you have such a hard time with. If you could think of that, it would very much affect the way you treat that brother. The Lord's tender toward him. The Lord's sympathetic toward him. The Lord's praying for him. You should be nicer to him. And there is certainly, there is a, a bouquet of applications to people who are not Christians. Christ cares for sinners. Christ is God, and as God, he spoke about being the judge of the world and how one day he would gather all the nations before him and he would separate all the individuals. Some would be regarded as sheep and some would be regarded as goats. And some he would cast into everlasting punishment and others he would bring into everlasting life. His sympathy does not cancel out his determination to judge. But he is sympathetic towards sinners. His judgment is not something that is a pleasure to him because he is sympathetic towards sinners. And if you, with your sins, would come to Christ, then this text would be true of you. If you would come to the Lord and, and just give yourself up to him, confess your sins to him, give your life to him, become his disciples, then you would find that he has the deepest sympathy with your struggles and with your sufferings. He would embrace you with an affection that you have not yet known, and he would take you to heaven. This is a wonderful passage. May the Lord help us to appreciate the Lord more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we are often ashamed of our sins. We are often ashamed of the distance that we allow to grow between you and us. We acknowledge, some of us acknowledge, that it's sometimes hard to to see how tender you actually are. And we pray that you would use this passage and other passages to open our awareness of how gracious how tender, how merciful you are. We are sorry for our sins and we say that sincerely that we hate them. And we acknowledge that we think you are like us and that you would just reproach us and reject us. It is wonderful to know how you reveal yourself in the Bible. Lord, we pray what was prayed at the beginning of the meeting that you would take this text and make it precious to us, make your son precious to us, and that we would admire him and love him more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.